Luke chapter 22, and we'll read verses 1 through 13. I invite you to stand once more out of respect for God's word. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our ears to receive your word, to believe it. And may it change our lives this day forward, the year ahead, and for a lifetime to come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're back in the the book of Luke, finally, after a time of uh, break from our sermon series, working through the book of Luke. As a reminder, we have been hearing Dr. Luke speaking by the Holy Spirit, and he has been leading us on a journey with Jesus to Jerusalem. He has been telling us the greatest story ever told. And one of the things I love about the book of Luke and and about the, the mastery of God's word is that as someone who studied literature as an English major in college, you know, I just can't get enough of the literary genius of God's word. How God takes this story and and weaves it together and takes all those elements of, of plot and characters and drama and he weaves it together and he does it in such a way that he actually brings us into the story. And here's the the thing we need to remember. This is not just a story. It's a true story. It really happened. That's what's so amazing. It's it's literary and it's beautiful and it's genius, but it it actually happened and it actually has so much to say to us today. You'll remember back chapter nine, 
And then all the way to chapter 19, we were following Jesus to Jerusalem. And at times it felt like, are we ever going to get there? Is Jesus ever going to arrive in Jerusalem where he has set his face like Flint? And then several months ago, arrived in chapter 19, and Jesus was indeed entering into the city. Palm branches waving, people singing, Hosanna is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But as we enter this new year, I I have to warn you. There's something that's changing in the drama of the book of Luke. A heaviness starts to set into the story. You might even start to hear it. You've probably heard it today. It's like dark storm clouds are rolling in. You get the feeling that everything that came before this was just leading up to this point and something big is about to happen. And that's right. The heaviness that you are feeling set into this story is that gravitational pull of the cross. Jesus is getting closer and closer and closer to do what he came to do. And over the next three months, we're going to hear about those dark storm clouds settling in. Keep your eye on the Savior as, as the darkness gets deeper and deeper. Keeping our eye on the Savior to this morning. And as we do, we see a plot form. A plot formed... And that plot is very simple. Jesus must die. It's a plot that forms at a time of of joy and celebration for the Jews, a time of feasting called the Passover. It's a time when sacrificial lambs were brought. And you remember the story of the Passover. We'll talk about this more in upcoming weeks. But it was a time when the sacrificial lamb, his blood is, is um, shed and put on the doorposts. And that lamb eaten amongst the people of Israel so that their sins could be passed over. And it's during this time, this energy charged season of Israel's life that a plot forms to kill Jesus, to kill the Savior. Let's look together at this plot by looking at the four characters of this text. Four characters that we see plotting and planning. And the first is the chief priests. The chief priests. We've heard about these gentlemen before in our walk through the book of Luke. They were the highest religious leaders in the day. They were the ones who had charge over the temple uh, that that key place in the life of Israel. And they were in charge of the sacrifices and, and the priesthood and all of the different rituals and, uh, that, that came out of the Old Testament. And they were charged with teaching the people of Israel about these things. And it's out of these chief priests that we see form a motive, a motive that just kicks this plot off. And what is that motive? To kill Jesus. It's a motive of hatred. They want the control that Jesus is taking away from them. That's why they want to kill Jesus. You say, why would you want to do that? Jesus is their biggest threat. Here's why. 
When these chief priests look at the temple, what do they see when they look at the the temple and all of its beauty? They see a permanent structure that as long as that temple is standing, their power is in place. The temple is like a job security for them. And because as long as that temple is standing, the people need them to explain how, how to sacrifice animals, to, to go into the Holy of Holies for them in behalf of God, to enter God's presence for them. And so as long as that temple is standing, they have a job. They have power over the people. And so along comes Jesus saying, hey, this temple, it's not going to last very long. It's going to come tumbling down because guess what? This temple was never meant to be a permanent structure. It was always supposed to be a shadow pointing forward to guess who? Me. Jesus says this physical temple was not meant to last. It was paving the way for me. And when the, when the chief priests hear that, they hear, oh my, he's taking away our power. He's taking away our control over the people. And then Jesus uh, comes along talking about the Bible. Now, when the chief priests look at their Bible, you know, when they hold up the Old Testament, um, and they look at their Old Testament. What did they see? They saw a set of rules which they could master and which they could keep close. And, and, and th- those set of rules were their power over the people. Again, they were their control so that they could tell people how to please God. They could tell people how to be perfect before God. And they had complete control of this. Along comes Jesus, and he looks at the Bible, and he sees something totally different. He sees the Bible not just as a set of rules to follow, but as a mirror that points forward to him, that demands a Savior, and points in every respect to him. He fulfills the law and the prophets, and he comes speaking this way. And you can imagine the chief priests, they say, no, you're taking away our control. You're taking away our power. You're taking away Everything that keeps our job security in place. And so they feel that power being wrestled out of their hands and they want to do something about it. They need control over Jesus. And the only way they know to do that is to kill him. Now we see this theme not only here, but it's true throughout history. Think about it. Where do we see this kind of control over Jesus coming, not just from the outside of the church, but actually from leaders that are called to be stewards of God's word? We saw it at the time of the Reformation. We saw it when the Roman Catholic Church kept the scriptures from the people. Why did they do that? Why were they so insistent on on not translating the Bible into the native tongue? Because if you can keep the Bible under your control, then you have Jesus under your control and you have the people under your control. See how that works? When When you keep the Bible away from the people, when you craft a Jesus of your own making, then you have the power, you have the control. Happened again, happens throughout history. It happens even today when we see teachers that are tasked with preaching Christ, denying that Jesus is the Son of God, come in the flesh to save sinners. 
denying those central facts of the faith, like that Jesus was born of a virgin. Why would people do that today? Why would people deny the scriptures and deny those central truths about Jesus? If you can keep Jesus manageable under your power, under your control, then you have the power. You have a Christ that does not control you, but, but apparently you can control him. I think there's a theme that weaves throughout church history that as soon as Jesus gets so big that we can't control him, that sometimes our religious leaders throughout the church you know, really balk at that and say, oh no, no, I, I don't know what to do with this. So this is a warning should be a warning to us when we see this plot forming from within the religious leadership. It's a warning to leaders today, to me, to Brad, to Andrew, to Nathan, to Paul, that the second that we forget that we are servants of Jesus, that he's in charge, that we are simply presenting Christ to the nations. As soon as we start to try to build his church of our own power, as soon as we try, try to make him smaller so that we can manage him, we're falling into the same error of the chief priests trying to control Jesus. And so that's a warning to us that this plot hatches with the chief priests, with the religious leaders of, of their day. But we not only see the, the motive hatching with these chief priests, we also see another character in this text, and that's Judas Iscariot. What does he provide? He provides the method, the method for this plot. And that method is simply this, betrayal. See, here's the problem for the chief priest. They hate Jesus. They want to control him. They don't like that he is that that he's taking everything out of their hands that they want to control. But they can't get to Jesus while people are watching. Because the people have placed their hope in Jesus. And as long as those people are watching, the constant threat is that a riot is going to break out. Right. If they arrest Jesus in, in, in broad daylight, if they bring charges up against him, then I mean, every uh, Jerusalem is packed with people who are there for the Passover and it's just going to erupt in violent protest. And so they don't know what to do until there they are sitting in some back room, scratching their heads, plotting and into the door walks their perfect solution for a sinister plan. In walks the the missing piece of the puzzle, Judas. Who is Judas? He is a man of unspeakable privileges. You look at this text, you see something shocking that's said about him. He was numbered among the 12. Judas is a church member. Judas is an apostle, capital A, someone who has seen Jesus with his own eyes. He has seen things He's been commissioned to do things that only 11 other people in the history of the world have been commissioned to do. This Judas saw the Savior with his own eyes, something that we long to see. He touched him with his hands. He he ate 
next to him at the place of honor at, at, at the table. And here he is of his own will showing up and selling out the Savior for 30 pieces of silver. We hear that 30 pieces of silver piece in another one of the Gospels. It's the cost of common slave in this ancient time. That's what Judas is willing to take for the life of Jesus. You hear that and you say, why? Judas, why would you do that? Why would you provide a method for the motive of hatred of these chief priests? Why would you show up? I mean, look, it's one thing if they come to you. That would be horrible, but this is even worse. Why would you show up of your own will? The answer comes in this, that there's something that Judas is, has hidden away deep in his heart. It's a little sin. It's a little lust for worldly wealth that he's tucked away. He planted deep in his heart. Throughout the Gospels, we hear hints of it, that Judas has this desire for money. He's not satisfied with what he has in his life with Jesus. And he takes this thing and he plants it deep, deep, deep in his heart where he thinks that it's never going to be a problem. But it's grown. It's grown and grown over the course of Jesus' journey. And now he's doing crazy things for that sin. He's a servant of it. He, it's almost like he's out of his mind, but he's fully responsible for what he's doing because he is a servant of the lawlessness of sin. Now we hear about Judas, and again, this is a warning for us today. It's a warning for you. The early church heard about Judas and, and they said, this has to be a warning for everyone who is outwardly related to Jesus in this life. To not only, you know, to, to, to not unduly trust in that outward connection we have with Jesus, but at every point be looking at our own hearts and saying, am I hiding something unconfessed for my Savior? Am I growing something deep in my heart that our Savior says is sin? Kids, I, I've thought about it this way. Imagine that you go to the pet store and you buy a big snake, you know, a boa constrictor, and you take it home and it's in a cage. And the next thing you do is you say, well, you know, it's right now it's just a little baby snake, right? He can fit in this cage. I'm going to let him out and he's going to crawl around my room. So you let him do that for a while. You kind of forget about him, right? You just, just keep feeding him stuff. And then before long, that snake has grown so big that he starts squeezing you and you, you can't get out from under. Now, that's really scary. Actually, it's a pretty scary story. What, what, why do I tell that scary story about a snake that starts off slow, small, and grows bigger and bigger and bigger? Because that's what our sin is like in our lives. That's what, that's what it was like for Judas who talked away this love for money and never really dealt with it, never brought it to the Savior. If we talk away our sins and say, one day I'm going to deal with that problem of jealousy. One day I'm going to deal with that problem of lust. One day I'm going to deal with my, my, 
that, that dissatisfaction I have with Jesus. If we don't deal with it right away, it's like we have a boa, a boa constrictor living in our heart and we are feeding it slowly and surely and it grows and it grows into this betrayal, betrayal of our savior. And if you don't think that you could do what Judas did, then you underestimate the power of unaddressed sin in your life. Betrayal didn't start here. You need to hear this. Judas's betrayal didn't start in this passage. It started way back when he decided to not confess his lust for worldly lust, his lust for worldly wealth to his Savior. That's when the betrayal started. And that's when it starts with us. As soon as we refuse to confess our sin to Jesus, we trade our love for Jesus for the love of our sin. So we hear of the motive of the chief priests in this plot, their motive of hatred for Jesus. We hear of a method, that method, betrayal, betrayal of a close friend of the Savior. And finally, we see another character who provides a master for this plot. And that master is Satan himself. Did you notice that in verse, let's see, verse three. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. Now that is a scary line, isn't it? We haven't heard of Satan for some time now. I mean, Jesus has mentioned him, but the last time we saw Satan, he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness and he was trying to deter Jesus from going to the cross to lay down his life for sinners. And Judas was, or Satan was trying to do that by trying to get Jesus to either set aside the cross or he was trying to nail him to the cross himself apart from Jesus's volition, apart from his own will. And so it, it, we heard way back in the book of Luke that Satan was unsuccessful. And so he was going to wait for an opportune time He's going to wait for an opportune time to come back and attack the Savior again. Well, here's the opportune time for Satan. Right when those thick, dark clouds are, are, are looming in. And right when Judas's lust in his heart, his unaddressed sin is flaring up. That's when Satan attacks. That's when Satan enters into Judas. And now that, that phrase is really interesting, right? He enters into Judas. I think what's happening here is Luke is drawing a line from us from uh, Luke chapter 22 all the way back in your Bible to Genesis 3. You can almost take a pen and, and take it all the way back. What is Luke, Dr. Luke, trying to teach us? He is teaching us that what is happening here is not just the conniving plan of men. It is actually a plot that is rooted way back in ancient times in Satan's evil scheme to put the Son of Man to an end. What did we hear back in Genesis chapter 3? God said that there will be one who attacks, that bruises the heel 
of the Son of Man. And that is exactly what Satan is trying to do here. Satan is taking possession of, of Judas, much like he took possession of a snake in Genesis chapter 3. And he is working his craftiness and he is striking out against the Son of Man. What, what is he trying to do? He is trying to nail Jesus to the cross himself. He is trying to put an end to Jesus by making this as, as, as cruel and unusual and as awful as he can. Trying to either deter the Savior from his mission or to put him on the cross himself. That's his plot. And so you see all of this coming together, this maniacal, this evil plan, plan of men and of Satan to put Jesus on the cross, to kill him. And you say, where is God in all of this? This is awful. Well, look at the final character in this text, the final character in this passage. It's Jesus himself. What is he doing? What is he doing while evil men are scheming and Satan is working his sinister plan? Jesus is calm and deliberate while all of this shady stuff is going down. And guess what he's doing? He's planning and he's plotting himself. This is really important to see at the end of this passage from verse Seven, all the way to 13, we're seeing the Savior in perfect control. He's not, he knows what's going on in dark rooms with men whispering and Satan possessing. But our Savior is planning. He is devising a perfect counterplot to the work of these evil men. The most heinous plot in human history was to kill the Son of God was to kill Jesus Christ. But guess what? The most perfect and loving plan in all of human history was to kill Jesus, the Son of God. See, this is what's so amazing about this plan. The plot of evil men and God's perfect plan to redeem sinful man agree on one point, and it's this. Jesus must die. But while sinful man wanted to put Jesus on the cross to control him and to, to get rid of him, what does God's plan, what does the son of God's plot involve? Putting Jesus on the cross in order to redeem sinners. So here's what's, here's what's so, it's an incredible irony in this passage. When the priest paid Judas to hand over Jesus, they thought they were getting rid of Jesus. What, what were they really doing? They were purchasing a sacrificial lamb. They were purchasing a perfect Passover lamb, preparing him for the slaughter. Jesus knew they were doing this. Jesus was in control of them doing this. He himself was preparing Passover and becoming that Passover lamb willingly. He was the Passover lamb going to the slaughter. Why would he do that? 
Why would he work his perfect plan into the evil plot of sinful man? Because of this. Because someone, in fact, only the perfect God-man could die as the Passover lamb for the sins of humanity. No amount of lamb's blood shed on that night of Passover could deal finally and fully with our sins. Only the sacrifice of a perfect, eternal person, God himself, come in the flesh to save sinners, could deal with our deepest problem of sin. And that is what Jesus is doing. That's at the heart of his counterplot. He's going to die as the Passover lamb. He has died as the Passover lamb so that he can rise again from the dead to undermine all the sinful and evil plots to try to control him and offer that salvation freely to all who will come to him by faith. Friends, which plot do you belong to? There's two plots in this text. I think you've you've seen them. One is Satan's Passover plot. His plan to put an end to Jesus, to get him out of our minds, out of our world, out of our history. You can try that plan. It doesn't work. Because God's taken that plan and he's woven it into his so that he has countered it with a second plot. God's Passover plot to provide a perfect sacrificial lamb so that all who would believe in that dying son of God will have eternal life. Sins covered perfectly and fully. Which plan do you belong to? Have you looked to that Passover lamb, the only one who can save you from your sins? Have you believed in him? If you have, then Look at what great reassurance this passage gives you. If God could take the evil conniving plans of sinful men with the most heinous sin in all history and work those plans for the good of all who would believe in him, won't he do that with every obstacle and every struggle that you come up against? Whatever the devil is up to with COVID-19, Whatever Satan is up to with those temptations that keep surging in, you know, uh, in your life today, and you say, why, why did this come up? I don't understand it. I thought I was done with this sin. The persecution that you experience for your faith on a day-to-day basis, guess what? If God could take the most heinous sin and the most awful obstacle in the world and take it and use Christ's death on the cross for the redemption of man... Can't he take those smaller obstacles in your life today and use them and direct them for your good and for his glory? He can do that. If you, and he will do that if you are leaning upon his perfect plan, the Passover plan, the plan that Jesus went freely and fully to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your plan, your plan of redemption. We thank you that Jesus prepared it and prepared it perfectly. 
even prepared it in such a way that the plans of sinful man was brought to nothing. That they were fooled. That they fooled themselves thinking they could stop you. Lord, help us to never think that we can foolishly undermine you, but help us to trust in your perfect provision of a Savior, even the dying Lamb and the risen one. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.